Newman. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be joined in just a few min minutes by Congressman Jim McGovern. He was scheduled to be with us at the very top of the show today, but Congressman McGovern has been called to an urgent meeting, a just called meeting of the Rules Committee. He is, of course, the ranking member when the Democrats had a majority. He was, of course, uh, the chair of the Rules Committee. Hopefully he will be the chair of the Rules Committee uh, again soon. Uh, so we are going to interrupt whatever we are discussing on our fish wrap when Congressman McGovern is able to join us. He said he'll try to step out of the meeting and give us a few minutes, which we really appreciate. I would like to bring to uh, your attention something on the front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette under the headline, A Grim Budget Preview. Well, this is something we have been talking about on the show for Northampton and for other towns and municipalities in our region uh, because, well, it's not a secret, but it's also not something that has gotten the attention that we think it deserves, and so we have been paying a lot of attention to it. The subhead is Mayor warns school spending increases will require overrides with two fiscal cliffs coming. Here's what the story by James uh, Pentland, the uh, staff, staff writer, says. Dateline Northampton, city councilors and school committee members heard a sobering budget presentation Tuesday by Mayor Gina Louis-Shera warning of the necessity of a Proposition 2.5 override or Proposition 2.5 overrides, plural, to cover ballooning school spending. Using dozens of charts to break down the city's outlook on revenues and expenditures for fiscal 2025, which begins July 1st, 2024, Shara said that even a 4% increase in next year's school budget, and let me flip to the rest of the page, which of course has just disappeared. But anyway, she says it's insufficient, and we are in deep trouble about that, the school budget, and the city is in deep trouble in order to try to raise the money. Uh, here it is back. Gina Louis-Shera said even a 4% increase in next year's school budget while holding other municipal departments to a 2.5% would leave a $700,000 hole in the budget and require at least a $2.5 million override for fiscal 2026. I'm not sure that voters in Northampton are going to look at that uh, with the kind of enthusiasm that they have for previous 2.5 overrides, but we'll see. Couple of other points in the story. The Northampton Public Schools want to increase next year's budget by 8% uh, over this year's, the current year's budget, according to a budget proposal floated in December. And uh, the mayor says that would mean, get this, a $3.5 million deficit for FY25 and create the need for two. $5 million overrides in the next five years because, of course, those expenses in the next years just continue and continue at an inflation-adjusted rate that will require a lot more money. So Northampton has finally come to the realization that, I know the mayor has had this realization for a long time, but now the public at large in Northampton has come to the realization that there is not enough money being raised through taxes and through grants and state aid to cover what we say 
we want to cover and spend money on. The uh, fiscal uh, rainy day funds are will be grossly insufficient to deal with this. Northampton created the uh, fiscal stability stabilization fund with the two and a half million dollar override in 2015. Um, that was with the idea that there would have to be another override in out years and that that override would take us through the next five or six years. And it in fact did exactly what Mayor David Narkowitz said it would do and it got us to where we want it to be. But the school budget is now really in uh, trying to be polite about this. The school budget is in a lot of trouble. And the question is, how are we going to pay for the school budget? And we have to realize that school budgets are mostly about personnel. You can save just so money by slashing the number of paper clips you use. Most of a school budget is about personnel. It's about educators and all of the services that we have in schools that go to providing a, an education for our kids that we can be proud of. So the story goes on for a long time. This is something that we will be, of course, covering in detail. Uh, and we're going to hear about this. I, this is not news to any of the other cities and towns in the area either. We're going to hear this in Amherst. We're going to hear about this uh, in other municipalities as well. Uh, if this deserves absolutely to be on the front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, it gets down in the weeds pretty quickly, but the big story is really easy to grasp. The school budget as proposed is far beyond what the actual revenues are to support it. And Dan Torres, I know you're a resident of Amherst and have a lot to say about what is happening in Amherst with regard to the schools. I'm wondering if this triggers you. Yes, uh, I can confirm that Amherst has a similar deficit in their school budget. Uh, I think it's smaller right now than Northampton. Um, They're from, still estimating what between one and a half and two million dollars. Is that what it's going to be? Actually, it's one point eight for the Amherst uh, regional uh, school budget, which is the middle school and high school. The deficit for the elementary school is half a million dollars. Mm. I mean, what's happening here is it's a combination. I'm digging into the numbers, actually, in my own free time. There seems to be, yes, like you said, there's been a lot of a hiring, especially post-COVID. There were these things called ESSER funds, which is federal government aid uh, post-pandemic to help schools deal with the additional issues that students are experiencing. But healthcare costs have also risen at around 12%. And again, you have a lot of employees, the healthcare costs that they're paying, you know, every paycheck um, keeps rising. And that's something the state hasn't been able to deal with or control in a manageable, it goes up about 12%. So uh, healthcare, new employees and state aid for towns that are outside of the gateway communities um, and aren't as rich as Newton or other places, um, haven't been getting additional aid. Then you have the two and a half cap override. So it's like the infrastructure of the city also needs support and assistance, but the school budget keeps growing. And then you have uh, every year there's guaranteed increases, right, to the it's part of the union contracts. So you add all of those forces, right, uh, guaranteed increases, 
re- additional yeah, hires. Dan, Dan, yeah. Dan, Dan, stop there for one sec, because I, I want to be clear. I, I'm not sure that it's an increase. This may be a salary adjustment, really a cost of living adjustment as opposed to an actual raise. So uh, in fairness to the teachers, it's not just that there are raises, although we use that term rather loosely. Most people do when they're talking about what's happening for the budget and the salaries for the next year. They talk about raises, but you know, if it's a 3% raise, a 4% raise, it would just be a matter of a cost of living adjustment and not a real raise. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's what uh, is happening. Well, right now in the Newton schools, they're having a fight. I mean, they haven't been, uh, uh, school hasn't been operating in, in that district. And I know it's far away from here. But they've been on strike for They've been on strike weeks. for at least 10 days, maybe more. Um, but the union also gets fined because, as far as I know, you guys are the lawyers here, it's illegal for unions to strike in the state. So, again, yes, I know what you're talking about. Inflation has been increasing very fast um, this year and, and last year. Um, and um, that's that's not going to go away. So you add that, plus a lot of schools also need to be rebuilt. And there's a cost associated to, at least in Amherst here, um, new construction. Or, you know, facilities need to... And I know that's a different part of the budget, but it is uh, really trying times, especially when... Um, you know, budgets are tight. In the state. And we want to continue this conversation, but I understand that Congressman Jim McGovern has just been able to join us. He has an emergency meeting. He's been attending with the Rules Committee in the House of Representatives. I think you're there. Uh, I uh, am, yeah. Are you there, Representative McGovern? I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. So, Representative McGovern, thank you so much for joining us. I realize you're having an enormously busy and intense morning. I don't know if you want to share what's going on at the Rules Committee, if that is of significance um, or not. Uh, I really was so pleased you were scheduled to be with us today because I wanted you to tell us what is happening in particular with regard to the proposal uh, for a deal of some sort with regard to the southern border that would greatly influence, of course, whether the United States is going to support Ukraine militarily at this point against Russia and Putin's invasion. Uh, I don't know. I know you just have a few minutes you can spend yeah. with us, but uh, well, talk well, to us. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so there is a negotiation going on in the Senate between Democrats and Republicans about a, a potential border deal. Um, we don't know all the details. I'm sure there are some things that they're talking about that would give me great angst. Uh, but nonetheless, there are discussions happening uh, because Republicans have said that you cannot do anything on Ukraine. They, they've been linked it to, you know, to to the southern border. And um, but but here's the kind of the, the the twist: while Republicans and Democrats are saying they're making some progress to coming to some sort of a compromise in the Senate, Donald Trump has weighed in and said, "Kill it, no matter what." And uh, House Republicans and the Speaker of the House have said, you know, we're not going to take it up. So, um, and, you know, they'd rather have an election issue than actually try to do anything about, you know, the challenges we're being, we were faced with at the southern border. It is really cynical. And again, I, we don't know what this deal will look like and whether it's some people can support it or not. But I mean, the idea that there's discussions and that you're ruling anything out of order, that you're saying that you're not going to consider anything because you'd rather have an election issue and then, then solve a problem, because I think if you solve a problem, it makes Joe Biden look better. 
I mean, I've I've been around here a long, a long time. I mean, you know, I, I, they're saying out loud, um, you know, the rationale for doing nothing. And meanwhile, um, Ukraine is, um, you know, they're holding on by their fingernails. I mean, Russia is pounding them, uh, and they're running out of out of bullets. And it's it's really quite sad. And uh, so I'm not sure how all this is going to be resolved, but this place under Republican rule in the House is dysfunctional. These these people are not fit to govern. Uh, they can't get anything done. Well, tell us just a bit more about that, if you would, please, because I'd like to understand what they're saying. They're saying they won't bring up any legislation that would do anything to solve the problems on the southern border, right. no matter how much they really want it, yeah. Yeah. because Trump needs that as a campaign issue, and if yeah. they have to destroy a fair part of the country to give Trump a campaign issue, well, damn it, they'll do it. Okay, I understand it. Does that mean they also won't bring up funding for Ukraine? Well, they ha they have not indicated that they're willing to delink Ukraine from the southern border, and this is the, I may have whiplash trying to follow these guys, right? You know, one you know one day they say we need to pass tougher laws, we need new laws, and then the Senate's working on a law, and they say no, we don't need laws. Uh, well, if you don't need laws, then what are you linking linking Ukraine to laws? that we need to pass on the southern border. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. This is a, you know, the, 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 the right hand doesn't know, know what the extreme right hand is doing around here. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, it's just crazy. And, um, and, you know, I, I made a point today in the rules committee that, you know, I mean, the rules committee, all the bills come to the rules committee before they go to the house floor. Um, and, um, you know, other than suspension bills that pass, by a supermajority, and um, we have not considered a bill in the rules committee that has become law, that has gone to the Senate and then gone to President's desk, that has become law in over eight months. In over eight months, uh, you know, when even when Donald Trump was president, I mean, we we were we were passing bills on a regular basis, and they were being signed into law by Donald Trump. Um, and, uh, these guys have in eight months have sent nothing to the president, um, you know, that has been signed to law. The only things that have been signed to law are bills that Democrats have had to help push over the finish line, like the tax bill. Uh, you know, yesterday they had the child tax credit in it. Um, but these guys are in charge. I mean, they're in charge when you're in charge and you're the majority in the house of representatives, your, your, your job is to, you know, schedule things and to move legislation and they have proven uh, to be not only incompetent, but quite frankly, I mean, if you could sue them, they should be sued for malpractice. Congressman McGovern, I know you have to return to your Rules Committee meeting. Uh, if you have to go, just tell us. If you have one more minute, I'd love to hear what sure. you can share with us with regard to your perspective on what is happening in the Israel-Gaza war. Well, you know, I continue to urge the president to uh, to get behind a ceasefire um, I mean we, we have to stop the killing and um, and I repeat to every audience I can that you know what happened on October 7th um, was barbaric it was it was a vicious attack on civilians there's no there's no there's, there's no basis for it uh, and the taking of hostages 
is a war crime. That every hostage ought to be released. We ought to all agree on that. And you can be horrified by October 7th, but also uh, be terribly disturbed and horrified by the response of Israel, um, especially Congressman, in the Congressman Governor, yeah. I, got, I got to interrupt you because your staff is texting me. They need you back in the Rules Committee. We're going to let you go. Oh, all right. Well, anyway, well, let me just say one final thing about that is that, you know, um, you know, this morning there's a report that the State Department is now weighing a proposal to formally recognize a Palestinian state. And I hope that they move forward on, on something like that, because, you know, we, we, we want a ceasefire, we want to stop, stop the killing, we need to get humanitarian aid into the Palestinians, we need to guarantee Israel's security, we need the hostages released, but we also need to think about what happens next. Because, you know, simply stopping the bombing, why we won't want that, that that's not the, that, that can't be the end of the story. Uh, Israel needs a security, and the Palestinian people deserve a, a state where they can live with dignity uh, and they can, you know, succeed and have a good life. I mean, where human rights can be, their human rights can be upheld. So, you know, we are at a point now where, you know, where I think, you know, these, these, these topics need to be discussed. They need to be on the table. Um, and I know that Prime Minister Netanyahu is very much against that. But the, the United States, as Israel's ally and the world community, needs to make clear that there's, you know, that, that the path to peace, the path to Israel's security, needs to include a Palestinian state. So, anyway, it's, it's terrible to watch all this unfold. But uh, I, I, I continue to hope and pray every day that uh, that that there'll be a breakthrough. Uh, and then we can move forward. So, uh, but in any event, I appreciate you taking me on uh, in this abbreviated way, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Congressman. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, All Congressman. Bye. You're listening. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We have had a couple of different balls in the air in our conversations this morning. Uh, we began by talking about the grim budget preview for Northampton, and in particular, the grim budget preview for the schools in Northampton. We then went to the town of Amherst, and Dan Torres helped uh, elucidate the issue of the shortage of funds for the Amherst schools. Uh, we then had the opportunity to speak with Congressman Jim McGovern, really appreciated it him stepping out of the Rules Committee to spend time with us. Uh, and now we would like to return to this question of local municipalities and schools and the shortage of money that I think most of the cities and towns in our listening area are going to be experiencing. And those budget discussions are happening now because we are talking about the budget that will be in effect for fiscal year 2025 July 1st of 2024, it will be here in an eye blink. And I know, Buzz Eisenberg, that you pay attention in particular to these matters with regard to the hill towns. Is it bad up there in the hills as it is down here in the valley? I think that's exactly the right way to lead into this conversation. The answer is yes, yes, and yes. I have been going to our annual town meeting for, I think, about 52 years now. And I remember when we used to grouse about the fact that it was the schools were going to become almost 40% of our annual budget was going to be de devoted to our uh, local elementary school and our regional 
uh, high school uh, district. And um, what has now happened is I think last year, for this fiscal year, I think we're at about 54% of our budget. And it, it isn't just the percentage. It's the gross money. I think we're over from my small town, which has 1,800 people, and a declining school enrollment, uh, greatly de- declining school enrollment. I think uh, we're up to about $2.3 million a year. Uh, and our budget has increased to about $5 million a year, $5.1 million a year. And we are not unique. That's every one of the eight towns that form our, the Mohawk School District, um, are in roughly the same place. And uh, I think, Bill, you know, uh, we all celebrated. I celebrated enormously the fair share amendment and the idea that there was going to be a a tax on people earning over a million dollars a year um, on that portion of it. It was going to be a surtax uh, that was not going to have anything more than a very slight impact on their earnings and at the same time is going to bring up to $2 billion a year. I, I think we all have to really think about whether people who make those kinds of wondrous salaries every year ought to be paying more than just 4% of what they earn over a million dollars because every time I see an estimate of how to resolve problems with schools in Massachusetts, it's if only we would tax the people who just rake in money in unthinkable bucket loads if they would just pay the same kind of proportional payment in taxes that the rest of us do we wouldn't have an issue but we have an issue now where every municipality every one of our 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts um, is suffering what do we do and and by the way apropos to your conversation with Dan about whether or not it really raises our educators are profoundly under, uh, overworked, underpaid. But um, we also have to contribute out of our school budgets to those pensions, those monies which have been earned by retirees, and they are growing larger in number as we have an aging population here in Massachusetts. So the burden is getting greater. We, we have to fix it by having a rational, fair, we call this a fair share amendment, it's not fair enough. I think therein lies the answer because otherwise it's an intractable problem for every city and town in this Commonwealth. Well, I think there's going to be one big obstacle, this is Dan, uh, that you're going to face is within the Democratic Party itself in the state of Massachusetts because at least the headlines that I'm reading uh, in newspapers from the governor and other Democrats is – they are worried about higher taxes on the higher income earners that you talked about because they they can now leave the state. And that's why they did the tax cuts. Well, they gave a lot of tax cuts to people who are paying rents and other things like that. They they the are short term capital. The gains, right? They're giving short term capital gains to keep them in here because they pay. You know, they earn a lot. They pay a lot in taxes. And they're worried about those people now leaving for New Hampshire or Vermont or Maine and working remotely and not having to live in Massachusetts. At least that's a concern and a division that I'm reading within the Democratic Party. To pass You're right. There is a simple solution. But I think the long term solution has to involve a more equitable or, or elected different types of Democrats into power. It's another option. Right. More progressive Democrats who are willing to take on those tax issues. Yeah. Bill. Bill is muted. Uh, You're Bill. in fantasy land. Both of you. I really I really think so. I'd like to look. No one's raising taxes 
on, on, on income over a million dollars this year or next year or any time soon. That's reality. Um, the fact that the Democratic Party and its leadership, including Governor Maura Healy, is concerned about people moving out of state and, and or working remotely from places other than Massachusetts, that is a real concern. GE moved with great fanfare to Boston a few years ago. Hasn't panned out at all. Um, we have a tremendous workforce in Massachusetts. We have an enormous amount to offer businesses, particularly those that want an educated workforce. So we have a lot to offer, but we are also uh, at, the, at the risk of doing something that uh, may adversely affect Massachusetts. In any event, there isn't going to be a big tax increase or any tax increase, increase for persons earning over a million dollars. Again, we were enormously successful in getting the 4% uh, uh, fair share amendment surcharge passed. Uh, so the back to the question, with actual reality, are the schools in the hill towns going to lay off to educators and do they have the will to do it? And if they don't, what are they going to do? School budgets are about salaries. Um, the only way you save on a school budget is you lay people off. And that's reality. And if there's something else to be said about that, I'd love to know. But I really do want your response to Buzz. Isn't that going to happen in the Mohawk Regional School System? Doesn't it have to happen? It doesn't have to happen because there are contracts that guarantee certain uh, people that, that guarantees their employment. And I just want to circle back to where you began, Bill, which is, uh, yes, I, I agree. It is not a reality that's going to happen this year. Nobody's saying that it should happen, that it's going to happen this year. But every good policy begins with aspirations. And I think that we have to rethink our, our, our tax code with respect to making it possible for smaller municipalities to survive. And yes, even though the, the vast, uh, the, the majority of the costs that, we're, uh, that are burdening our schools do involve salaries, we have aging schools. I mean, in Amherst, they just there's $91 million being invested to replace two elementary schools, which were substandard and in this greening age, we hope. Well, we're so, a nightmare. So that to, comes from a different part of the budget, from it my does, understanding. But, but, no, but we're, we, I mean, but, here yeah. in Northampton, they're talking about a tra stabilization funds. Stabilization funds usually, yeah. where I live, yeah. those are usually about capital investments. We usually right. try to, you know, buy that new uh, plow that we need or fix that steeple in the down hall. Well, with stabilization funds. Well, the way I'm reading uh, what what Bill is asking us is, Bill, from my understanding of looking at budgets uh, without some short-term capital infusion, either from the state or the federal government, is there's likely to be layoffs. I don't see how else you could close the budgets. You're, I think Buzz is talking about something more of a medium term, like a two or three or four year, can there be a additional term. Or long term, yes. This is uh, a long term this problem. This is a long term problem of uh, funding schools, which is a big attraction to this area, to these towns, you know, from Northampton to Amherst are, are the schools. And the the state doesn't look like it's going to have the additional revenue to cover school budgets. So I don't know how it can be closed without significant layoffs. I don't know what that I mean. I don't think I'm, I'm making that up to scare people or to say that that's necessarily the best strategy. But I don't see how else the budgets can be closed, in my opinion. Well, Bill, uh, a lot of this has to do with our memory of how things have been and how things are going. But speaking of memory, we have a very special guest uh, coming up.
Okay. You want to tell us? Sure. We have Rebecca Starr, Dr. Rebecca Starr, and she is uh, heading this incredible, she's a, she works in geriatrics at the Cooley Dickinson Hospital, and there is a unit dealing with memory that is, well, it's of great interest to everyone, not just the aging population around here, but all of us. We're going to be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.